Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey guys, it's Stormy here. We've had a bit of change in our schedule due to unforeseen circumstances. We will bring you our next episode, the finale of C.J. Wilkinson's case, in two weeks. We know you've been patient with a holiday sabbatical from producing episodes, but we do appreciate your patience and that you've continued following our podcast to help bring awareness to these cold cases. As we get back on schedule, we will have some fun things to share with you as well. Also, one quick item. We posted on Patreon as well as Facebook and Twitter, X, whatever, I still can't call it X, that we're collecting questions and or discussion topics from our cases last year or Alabama cases that you would like us to share in the coming year. Keep in mind, typically our cold cases are two or more years without any progress. We will review the comments, questions, and requests and share them in an upcoming episode or episodes. Since we have a delay in our regular episode scheduling, we didn't want to leave you completely in the lurch. So this is sort of a mini-sode. I'm going to tell you about the mysterious case of Rebecca Ann Henderson-Polk. Please be sure to share the episode and raise awareness of Rebecca's case. And thank you to everyone for going with the flow when we throw monkey wrenches into the mix. I do want to share that I researched several articles in the case, but also obtained quite a bit of information from an interview with Janet Henderson, Rebecca's mother, um, with the Unfound podcast. Please check that podcast out, and I'll include that information in the episode details. Rebecca Polk is from Linden, Alabama. Linden is the small county seat of Marengo County, and oddly home to only roughly 1,900 souls. Somewhat small for a county seat, it seems to me. To give some context to the location, Marengo County, named after Napoleon's victory over Austrian armies at the Battle of Marengo, is roughly 160 miles north of the shores of Mobile and has a modest population of approximately 18,750. Where we begin Rebecca's story, though, is in Demopolis, Alabama, where her parents, Wes and Janet Henderson's home, is located. And also, it's the largest city in the county with roughly 6,900 citizens. Wes and Janet gave birth to Rebecca in 1988, and four years later, they gave Rebecca a baby brother named John. Rebecca graduated from Linden High School in 2007 and went on to study nursing after graduation, though she never started working in the nursing field. 
In April of 2012, she married Cody Polk, who was essentially a high school sweetheart. They seemed happy, but they fell into some challenging times. They survived a severe fire that completely engulfed and destroyed the trailer they were living in. They lost everything. The unofficial cause of the fire was a lightning strike. However, there were rumors that Cody had been making meth and that there may have been an accident. The fire marshal never did do an investigation, so there was never a determination there of the real cause of the fire. After the fire, their relationship seemed to fall apart a bit. He hadn't worked much during their marriage, and she was supporting them fully at the time of the fire. They separated and each had relationships with other people, though even up to her disappearance, they remained legally married. Rebecca's mother confirmed in the Unfound podcast that they did not believe that Cody had anything at all to do with Rebecca's disappearance. And it seems like most people, that was their take on it. They just had dissolved their marriage, so to say. Rebecca's parents bought a trailer and put it on some property in Linden, which is just about eight minutes from Wes and Janet's home, where Rebecca would then live until her disappearance. Soon she met a man by the name of Philip Cole, and though her parents discouraged it, he moved in with her. Rebecca was close with her family, especially with her mom. They talked by phone nearly daily, and it seemed that she was struggling, occasionally seeming happy, but at other times, not so much and they realized that she may be using drugs, though they didn't know to what extent. They did try to assist her to get help, but they don't think that she ever followed through. And of course, as we clarify with other cases, we don't share this to disparage the victims, but it does lend to risk factors and other possible avenues for investigation. Philip and Rebecca's relationship was also not great, it seemed. This was more than evident when a shocking incident happened in July of 2015. Philip ran over Rebecca with his truck at their home. And I thought that was crazy. Like, maybe it was a story that you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't understand until you read it. But no, it's really like it seems. She told her mother that she was standing at the back of his truck and that he had intentionally backed up over her and then left her there. She had to crawl on the ground to her house to get to her phone and crawl back outside to get a signal in order to call 911. She ended up at UAB Hospital with several broken ribs, and when she was first discharged, she stayed with her parents. They said it could take months for her to fully heal. I am actually surprised that there weren't more injuries, and possibly there were, but there weren't any mentioned anywhere in any of the audio or articles I read. Though he hid, Philip was eventually questioned. However, she never filed charges, and the police never charged him with anything either. Her parents actually did try to file charges themselves, since it happened on their property, but to no avail. Rebecca did end up going back home, and Philip continued to live there at least part of the time, though, again, her parents were urging her not to do that. Per her mother, at some point, they found out Philip had been mentally abusive to Rebecca, and as you could expect, this had a huge impact on Rebecca's self-esteem. In addition to the psychological bruises, they also saw she had many physical bruises, though no proof that he had been causing them. And, of course, as do so many victims of domestic violence, she continued on with her relationship. 
On Monday, September 7th, which was Labor Day in 2015, Rebecca brought her two chihuahuas with the intention of visiting and having dinner at her parents' house. They thought she seemed okay when she arrived. Before dinner, though, she was sitting in the car texting on her phone and asked her mom to come grab the dogs and then said she would be back. Her mom gave her some extra encouragement to come back and told her to be safe, and her dad mentioned that she did need to come back and eat dinner. Rebecca had even left laundry in the washing machine to finish. However, she was never again seen by her mom and dad. As parents would normally do, they began calling and searching. Her home didn't look like anyone had been there. They contacted Philip's mother, who was on the offense, threatening that she was going to have Rebecca arrested because she got into Philip's messages or something really that seemed a bit obscure. I'm not sure why anybody would get arrested for that. And she wouldn't put Philip on the phone at all. Later, when questioned, she tried to give Philip an alibi by saying he was with her for two days. But later, she had to admit that that wasn't true due to other people saying that they had seen Philip with Rebecca not long before she went missing. It was said that they may have been going to Meridian, but he didn't want to go, so she dropped him off close to home before continuing on to Mississippi. Unexpectedly, the sheriff's office in Lauderdale County, Mississippi, contacted Janet Henderson asking her if her daughter's car was a white 2006 Honda Civic, which it was. Apparently, some teenagers out four-wheeling had found her car in the little town of Why Not Mississippi down a dirt or logging road. Now, to further give you some context as to where this is, it is only about a mile over the Alabama-Mississippi border, roughly about 45 minutes from Demopolis in her parents' home. Why not has little information, and I mean very little information available other than there apparently are racetracks there, like for car racing. And also one of the lead singers for The Temptations was from this tiny town. Now, I'm probably dating myself, but technically this was actually before my time as well. However, for some of you who are even younger and were wondering who the Temptations are, and I hope that's not true, but for those who are, you might know the song My Girl, which is used in movies like the movie My Girl and commercials occasionally. So beyond that, I couldn't even find population data on Why Not. This tiny postage stamp town was only about 20 minutes from Meridian in Mississippi. Her parents were told by the sheriff's department that they didn't think that she actually drove herself down there, since her parents didn't even think she had ever been to the area, let alone drive down a dirt road that was far too rough and had deep ruts in it. So the ruts were so bad that whoever did drive there got stuck, or at least the car did, I should say. But oddly enough, her iPad, laptop, and medications were all in the car, as well as the keys still being in the ignition. However, her cell phone was missing. What I couldn't find anywhere was whether the sheriff's office ever actually obtained cell data to try to track the movements of the phone to locate her. Also, strangely, per Janet Henderson to the Unfound podcast, though they say they dusted her car for prints, indicating maybe they looked at the car, the sheriff's department actually released the car to them that night, which I think is completely odd 
you would think that they would want to hang on to it until they figured out what was going on, at least, if not indefinitely, until she was found. So it seemed kind of odd for a case of somebody that clearly didn't seem to be just walking away from her life. Very odd. Janet tried contacting AT&T to find out what the last numbers were that Rebecca called. And one was a Mississippi number. The phone number turned out to be that of John Posso Jr. Sergeant Boswell of the Lauderdale Sheriff's Office said Mr. Posso had just gotten out of jail a couple weeks before. Janet, not wanting to wait, actually contacted John, who seemed to be under the influence when she got a hold of him. She told him who she was and that her daughter Rebecca was missing. And he said, repeating to himself over and over, that he was going to jail. She was able to get from him that it was because obviously he had just gotten out of jail. Not much time after Rebecca's disappearance had passed and two business surveillance cameras were retrieved and reviewed that captured September 8th, 2015 video of a woman believed to be Rebecca with Mr. Paso. In addition, not long after, he was picked up on unrelated charges involving possession of meth, stolen property, assault, and felon with a firearm. They questioned him, but in the end, they could not find anything allowing them to charge him with her disappearance. Also a few days after her disappearance, Rebecca's phone was discovered in a field about a mile away from where the car had been found. A search by deputies and canines took place, but again, did not locate Rebecca. Now, almost eight and a half years have passed as of this recording, and the case doesn't seem any closer to being solved than when they started. There seems to be a lot of steps not taken, and comments from the family and the media seem to confirm that they also feel that both Lauderdale Sheriff's Office and Demopolis Police Department haven't done a thorough investigation or at least tried hard enough to find their daughter. Without having any case documents, having spoken to the investigating agencies, or discussed her case with parents or family, I don't want to pass judgment on the investigation. I would say, with what little I've heard and read, I can see where there would be concerns. I did leave a message through social media to try to touch base with Rebecca's family. I also left a message with the Lauderdale Sheriff's Office and Demopolis Police Department to see if they could at least give us a status update on the case. If they or the family do reach out to us, we will, as always, provide an update in the near future. Rebecca is a white female with blonde hair and green eyes, standing at approximately 5 foot 6 inches tall and weighing around 145 pounds. She has a tattoo of a fairy on her right torso and the letters RC on her bikini area and the word love with some designs around it on her wrist. She was last seen wearing blue jeans and an unknown t-shirt. There is a total of $21,000 in reward money for information that leads to Rebecca's whereabouts. If you know anything about Rebecca's disappearance, any of the people that she was seen with, or places we mentioned her being at near or soon after September 7th of 2015, please contact Lauderdale Sheriff's Office at either 601 486-4952. Their anonymous tip line 
at 601-482-9806 or at their website. You may also contact the Demopolis Police Department at 334-289-3073, the East Mississippi Crime Stoppers at 855-485-8477. Or as always, you can contact us at Alabama Cold Case Advocacy, and that can be done through social media messaging or through our website. And all of this contact information will be in the episode details as usual. Thank you for listening, and please help bring Rebecca Henderson-Polk home. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.